Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It's rarely, rarely we can say the podcast comes to you from the ancient city of Baalbek or Helianopolis, as it used to be called by the Greeks and the Romans. We are seven kilometers from the Syrian border, deep in Hezbollah-held territory in Lebanon. And John, I am seeing a side of the world I have never seen before. An extraordinary From inside out, place. the hood, it's... I'm, I, <laughs> Exactly. At least I've seen it now. I might not be seeing it for a while. No, but it is an extraordinary place, an extraordinary place. The murals up here are all Iranian. The weird thing right. about Lebanon is when you go into various different sectors and various, various different ethnic areas, they're announced to you a little bit like West Belfast and East Belfast by murals, right? So, you know, you go right. to West Belfast and East Belfast, the murals, right? Yeah. So yeah. here... Uh, driving from the Mediterranean to Syria across the country. You basically, you leave Beirut, you go into the Becca Valley, very famous neck of the woods, and then you end up on the Syrian border going across. You go over the mountains, through the valley, and then up the mountains again. So you'd go through, for example, if it's a Maronite Christian area, you'll see Maronite Christian, usually generals from the army, big murals. And then if you go through a Sunni-held area, like Sunni Muslim, you'll see big, big murals of MBS, bin Salman, the Saudi oh, really? prince, okay. because he finances them. And then if you yeah. go to the Shia areas, the Hezbollah areas, where you, you actually see big murals of all the Ayatollahs and the Iranians. And, and are, an, is the writing in the Shia areas, is that in Farsi or, or? No, it's all in Arabic. It's still all in Arabic. Right. It's, it's basically, but an extraordinary thing here in the areas that are held by Hezbollah, which is a supporter of Assad in Syria. 
And yeah. also, so too is Putin a supporter of Assad in Syria. There are massive posters of Putin everywhere along the road to Damascus. It's amazing. Right. Right, massive and, and then, so how is the Ukrainian war being reported over there? Is well, it I don't know because I don't speak Arabic, much? but I mean, I would oh, say... Oh, yeah, yeah, but you're not getting I would a feel say, for it. Well, they're very, very much of the view, right, here, that there is a profound hypocrisy in the West about the invasion of Ukraine. What they see, for example, is that the West Bank in Palestine down the road is precisely the same as Ukraine, that one yeah. country has invaded another country, has occupied another country, and there's all song and dance over Ukraine, and there's not a dicky bird over Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, etc. Well, they're not wrong, though, either. And so that's the narrative here. So basically, when yeah. you sit down and you chat to people, like, you know, lads, lads, and lads, and I was going to say lads in the local bar, but it's not a bar. So lads in the local coffee shop, right? Yeah. Uh, and you start talking, and they, they can speak English, or they speak French very well here in Lebanon. So if, if it's kind of broken French or English, whatever, they just say, look, we're not Putin supporters. That's not our end game. But what we're looking at is our brothers in Palestine down the road are getting hosed and getting occupied and getting humiliated. And you guys are deciding that the monopoly and humiliation is the Ukrainians, whereas we have been occupied. And they really see themselves as we have been occupied yeah. for 50 years. So snap out of it. And yeah, it's I a think fair point. It's a, fair it's a very, very fair point. It's a very, very yeah. fair point. But so it's fascinating. But Baalbek, where we are, John, right, is, yes, is the best preserved Roman city in the world. In the world. And nobody knows about it. Very few people know about it. Yeah. The Temple of Bacchus here, right, which I have just been in this morning. And right. the Temple of Bacchus <laughs> has booze, has women in slinky dresses dancing. These are all images from 2,000 years ago. Right. It has even little poppy seeds because they were smoking heroin here. Like, you just the madness of the yeah. place. They were into opium, okay? The Romans were into opium. The Temple of Bacchus is the best preserved Roman temple in the world because when the Muslims came over and took over this part of the world, took over Baalbek, etc., for some reason they decided to use the inside of the temple as a cistern and they filled it with water. And what typically has happened to all these old temples is they were actually knocked down in order to use the brickwork and the stonework for defenses and fortifications. Right. So yeah, they were yeah, actually yeah. dismantled. That's why we don't have so many runes. The runes were actually dismantled, yeah. not least because the Romans, I mean, they, they built these phenomenal structures. But for some miraculous reason, in Baalbek, the local leaders decided to use the temples and this particular temple as a cistern. So they filled it with water, so they never dismantled it. So it looked right. almost as it was. But it was the, it was party central. So it was like the Tamangos of it was its like day. The, it was it was like the Sloopies <laughs> of its day. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like the Tamangos where the gang goes. Where does the gang go? Tamangos. <laughs> so I'm in the I'm in Tamangos. I'm in the Tamangos of the ancient world, John. Reporting. <laughs> I'm actually waiting for the slow set in Tamangos of the ancient world. <laughs> I've got knights in white satin here on the on the on the on the board. We're about to rock and roll. But what it does give you, John, what it does give you, apart from a sense of the complete absurd, which is uh, one of the many characteristics of this podcast, uh, a sense of what early globalization was like. So this yeah. is a center of commerce. Spices were coming from Arabia. Extraordinary stones were coming from Africa. Slaves were coming from all over the world, I, the Roman world. You have the city of Tyre down the road, one of the most important commercial cities. 
you know, you have early money, you've early, and it really gives you a sense of the vibrancy of the ancient world and the fact that globalization we think is all new, but in actual fact, it's been it's thousands of years old. And it was with that in mind yeah. that I think I want to introduce our next guest, because you've been asking me over the last couple of weeks, you know, what the hell is going on in the global economy? There's lots of anxiety around there. Markets yeah, are falling. People are, so let's talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about, unlike ourselves. So I want to go to Norway to talk to a fantastic brain, an old friend, a guy called Sonny Kapoor. Now, amongst his many, many affiliations, he's the professor yeah. of climate, geoeconomics, and finance at the EUI, that's the European University in Florence, lovely place to be a uh, professor at. He's the CEO of the Nordic Institute of Finance, Technology and Sustainability. He has advised all sorts of governments. He's a all-around good guy, big thinker, innovative thinker. And I can't think of anyone better to actually tie all these dots together than Sonny Kapoor. So let's go to Oslo, John, and talk to Sonny. Sonny, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, same here. It's very nice to see you again. I am all good, a bit jet lag, but good. Great. Now, listen, let's get right into it. Look, if you look at the headlines today, the markets are all over the shop. They've been falling for ages. People think the Fed is behind the curve. They don't know what's going on in inflation. We have obviously the war. We have the elimination of the significantly more risky assets that were all the rage last year. We've got Elon Musk pulling out of Twitter. You've got all sorts of things going on, right? Give me a context of why the world seems to be at such a strange tipping point right now. Well, so just go back to 2018, and we saw a more moderate version of, you know, sort of shocks in the financial market and things were not looking so good. And 2019, some of that continued. But what rescued the financial markets, ironically, was Corona and the pandemic. I mean, so... In a way, you know, that, that famous cartoon where the character walks off the cliff. And I think that had already Wiley Coyote, I think, is pandemic. his name. E exactly. And that continued. And then Corona happened and all the central banks went, you know, massive, unprecedented QE. And the cliff just extended a little bit. And now COVID has ended, at least, you know, in macroeconomic terms. And... Uh, the coyote is falling. So that's basically what's going on. And the, and the reasons are manifold and perhaps, you know, we can sort of discuss them one at a time. So let's, let's disaggregate. It's useful to discuss factors that were already true before Corona and what else new has happened since Corona and since the Ukraine war. So let's look at the former. Now, particularly uh, if you look at the numbers, I mean, it, it, there's just no two ways around it that the financial markets, particularly in the West, particularly in the United States, have had an absolute party, you know, a rocking party for the past three decades or so. You know, with a few blips here and there, there was the GFC, but every single time, every low was in retrospect the buying opportunity. And, you know, buying the dip was a philosophy that got everybody out. And, Central bank puts, wherein every time the financial markets get dislocated, central banks step in to enact policies, cutting interest rates, quantitative easing, that just push them to new highs. Those, those were very, very real, right? So effectively, for the past three to four decades, Western financial markets have generated returns off the order of 6 to 8% year after year, 
across the index. And that has been double the global growth rate, right? Now you can be a teeny tiny hedge fund and you can generate spectacular returns of 20% in an economy growing at 2% year after year, you know, perhaps forever and ever until the laws of compounding catch up with you. But if you're a large pension fund, if you're the whole financial system, there is no sustainable way of year after year, decade after decade, generating returns that are you know twice. I mean, we're not talking you know 1% higher, et cetera, twice or more that of global GDP growth, right? Because at the end of the day, no matter how finance gets dislocated from the real economy, the uh, rates of return have a fundamental link to growth rates. And those links were effectively broken. And those happen for a number of reasons. So the number one reason, of course, was the secular decline in, in global interest rates, which started with, and there's this whole narrative of you know Paul Walker coming in, raising interest rates. And since then, American and global average interest rates have fallen by an average of about 7% or so over those decades. And what happens when interest rates fall? You know, because all financial cash flow discounting in valuation uses the risk-free rate as the denominator with added some risk premium. As the rates fell, the value of all financial assets across the world, particularly those in Western markets, be it shares, be it fine wines, be it art, you know, crypto, and of course, very houses and the, and the houses housing, being the big ones. By far the largest. I mean, you know, pe- people don't, there's a lot of emphasis on stock markets, but housing is by far the world's largest asset class, also the yeah, one most implicated I, in the worst crisis, right? I always come back to it in this podcast and I always try to just, sorry, sorry, I always try to reinforce in the podcast to everyone that, you know, get the housing market right and you more or less can figure out and configure where the economy is going there. Never underestimate the power of leveraged property to catapult an economy northwards or southwards, depending on which way it goes. And that's really one of the story of the last 20 or 30 years, certainly in the West. And look, what you're saying, it's all to do with lower rates, the discount rate falling, just the general buoyancy and effervescence that comes when the asset that you sit on top of your house goes through the roof. You just feel richer. And then you go out and you do things with money that you don't really have. I I couldn't agree more. And maybe, you know, it's worthwhile having a short digression there. So I helped set up the housing finance program at the IMF. Now, if you go to the IMF and you say, hey, you know, let's say I'm a new country. How do I run my central bank? You know, how do I run my fiscal policy? They'll give you a manual chapter and verse. You go and ask them, how do I set up my housing finance system? And they have nothing particularly intelligent to say. It is so varied from country to country. You know, the Danish covered bond market, you know, the German system, what you guys had in Ireland versus, you know, what happens in in the Nordics, right? Uh, And of course, you know, the big giants, Freddie, Fannie uh, in the United States, and it's very particular market system. So there's so much variability. And the and the only thing we can say with certainty is that if you try and say, uh, here, hey, you know, which is a country with a model housing market, right? You know, which which doesn't lead to boom and bust, doesn't lead to this ridiculously distorted incentive structures and you know, large distributive issues, right? Urban versus rural immigrant versus native, you know, sure, young versus, versus old, renter, right? all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, young versus exactly, right? And and 
basically, you know, there is no good answer, right? So my last lecture at the at the fund on this used the examples of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands as five countries that would otherwise rank in the top 10 best governed countries on any list, right? But you look at their housing markets, the degree of distortion, the degree of overvaluation, the degree of, you know, badly distorted distributive issues, et cetera. And basically, they're all screwed. Uh, so, you know, what does the Bank of England do if the best macroprudential policy for housing is to relax planning permissions around the green belt, right? What does a politician do in the Nordics where house ownership rates are so high and on average older people who vote more often that the sensible decision to reduce the, you know, completely ridiculous valuations would make you instantly unelectable. Unelectable. Right? And if you're it's funny, so yeah. you've, well, you've just identified exactly the same dilemma. If you take those countries, your Nordics and the UK, and you throw them in, I'll offer you Ireland as an even more neurotically weird, screwed up example of precisely the same dilemma. And exactly as you've articulated, what you have is there is no economic textbook in the world which would say we should start from where we are with respect to housing. Exactly. And the political economy of where we are and from here to get to anywhere sensible is absolutely toxic. So as a politician, you make yourself unelectable. As a central banker, you don't want to oversee you know, the creation of a downward spiral of you know, revaluation that will end up in the mother of all financial crisis. So they're stuck in these impossible corners, which are, you know, by all economic, financial, uh, you know, political economy and distributive lenses, completely insane. And as one unnamed central banker once told me over dinner, you know, the, the secret of the Nordic social democratic system is that house prices always go up. If wow. that assumption is taken away, you know, a lot of the facade falls. And it's actually, it's more true than anybody would care to admit. Well, I mean, I think that that actually gets to the nub of the issue, because if house prices keep going up, as you said, older people with wealth attached to housing will continue to spend, they'll continue to vote very, very centrist. And ultimately, as you said, they will continue to be the sort of the ballast, the democratic ballast of the society. And you screw with that at your peril. But the downside then is younger people pay. Oh, absolutely. You know, the younger people uh, are, are going to pay from climate change. They're going to pay from, you know, an increasingly polarized politics. They're going to pay, you know, unless and until you have rich parents, which is how, you know, social mobility. So so, so the problem with, with sort of the Nordic model is income inequality is compressed. But wealth inequality is getting exacerbated with every passing year. And it creates for countries, you know, including Ireland and, and the Nordics, which have, you know, necessarily rising immigration and, and we need people, right? A big additional dilemma of, you know, the, the new migrants coming in and instantly becoming an underclass because they don't have access to the property ladder. And in places like the United States, where local where housing taxes are linked to the delivery of local services, it leads to this you know very polarizing effect of a separation between good and bad school districts, you know good and bad infrastructure, et cetera. 
and you see rising valuations in one area and stagnating and often you know it's divided along ethnic lines so so housing really is uh, i mean you know th- this is not uh, a podcast about housing but maybe we should do another one but, but it is just such a central issue well well actually let's let's park the housing discussion for now but i think we should come yeah. back to it because what you've described will be very recognizable for most of our listeners which is take a country like ireland you have falling levels of income inequality coupled with rising levels of wealth inequality and as you say an immigrant class that cannot get on that wealth conveyor belt but also a younger class that equally cannot get on the wealth conveyor belt and as you point out and increasing, and again in Ireland, this is a very new thing, an increasing role in society played by inheritance, because we never had rich parents because we were always poor. And now for the first <laughs> generation, there is a rich, you had, you had, you middle-aged, upper-middle-aged. And, and you can't. Well, yeah, we, we got rid of them. We got rid of them, right? There was a yeah, small revolution, exactly right. and yeah. they left. <laughs> yeah. And as well as they left willingly, they were kind of nudged to go. Anyway, let's. I'm going to yeah. come right back to this housing uh, we, look, right. definitely, let's park this. We'll come right back. To, I know people listening will say, hold on a second, keep going. That. Let's park this one. And let's come back in a couple of weeks. Let's focus now just on global markets. And again, why you think right now we're at an inflection point and the next few years won't be anything like the last decade or two. Excellent. So, so the first fact that we discussed was this secular decline in interest rate now. It may be, right, that the the present reversal in the direction of, you know, perpetually falling interest rates, at least in the United States, might not last, right? I mean, we may see another big recession. Central banks might have to stop raising rates or might cut again. Yeah. That, that may be, right? But even under that scenario, what you will see just arithmetically is the impulse on valuation achieved from interest rates falling from you know eight percent seven percent real to minus one two percent real can not be replicated from the present levels unless you think interest rates are going to sustainably go down to you know minus eight minus nine percent right a which, real rate which ain't gonna happen so we're looking at the new yeah. world exactly so at the best case scenario from you know from the valuation perspective is that rates are sort of you know lower for longer right which will just keep valuation at a steady level but that basically means that valuations that are a steady level that then the returns the seven eight percent you you've been you know expecting and factoring in into your pension models as most u.s pension funds do are gone right i mean it, it'll just deliver steady state but a much more likely scenario is that rates will rise and, you know, asset prices will fall. So that's the first fact. The second one, which links in particular to, you know, the outperformance of the American stock market and stocks in general, is that global corporate tax rates have fallen by an average of about 20% in these same decades, right? And since, from an investor point of view, what you care about is the free cash flow available for investors after taxes are paid, this has significantly enhanced free cash flows. Now, this corporate tax rate decline has been secular across the board with you know one or two exceptions here and there. And it applies whether you look at the top line corporate tax rates or global weighted average or just an arithmetic average. In all three cases, the decline is roughly sort of 20%. Now, 
for a number of reasons. One, the fiscal stresses that were caused by the GFC, and of course now you know turbocharged by Corona. There is a serious pressure, you know, the U.S. conservative candidate debate notwithstanding, to raise corporate tax rates, and there's a very strong pressure in a number of countries. And and again, it may be that the rise doesn't happen, but what is very certain is that from the present level, further fall of corporate tax rate of 20% is not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So we've got corporate taxes are going to go up. We've got interest rates are going to go up or at least remain a plateauing at this level. I presume we have the end of QE and personally post-corona QE, and and that's going to reverse the next, well, that's, that's in reversal right now. Absolutely right, and there again, I, I think people people underestimate the the effect of the Q of, of QE. I mean, uh, depending on you know when you draw the timeline and you know which all central banks you take into account, we've had somewhere between twenty to twenty five trillion dollars of QE, right? Which is a huge amount of money, you know, equivalent to something like you know third or fourth of assets under management by by pension fund and institutional investors that's been injected into the system creating new demand and of course you know you put in new buyers into the market and the pool of assets for purchase doesn't expand at the same speed and prices will be bid up so uh, j- just to recap right so the secular decline in interest rates is at an end which means it will no longer provide the tailwind for asset price valuations. And if, as we have seen, you know, the, the Fed raising rates, if some of this rate rise continues, it is going to become a headwind that would push down asset prices further. Second, the secular decline in corporate tax rates has come to an end. And, you know, the OECD BEPS 2.0 global deal on minimum corporate taxation is one of the symptoms. There's been a lot of crackdown on tax havens, and I know you know Ireland and the Netherlands, and of course have been very active part of this debate, and and you know you have played your role in that, and you can feel the pressure from all of the other large G G seven G twenty economies in the EU to end the particular tax regime you had. So so at best, taxes corporate taxes will stay the same, uh, which is highly unlikely, but much more likely scenarios they will start rising, and which means post tax. Cash flows available to interest uh, to investors are going to fall, and hence valuations are going to fall. And then number three, somewhere between twenty to twenty-five trillion dollars of new money created by central banks across the world would bid up, which bid up the prices of assets across the board, either directly by buying them or indirectly by buying particular assets, which investors who sold them went on with the new free cash flows to buy other assets, right? Is, is again at an end and has started reducing. And, you know, whichever scenario one looks at, you know, we really hope and wish that we don't end up with a scenario where central banks need to inject, you know, another $25 trillion of QE. And again, it, it's the pace of, of QE, right? So, so even if QE doesn't end, right, even if the central bank current stock of assets remains the same, even if, you know, the ECB gets forced into restarting a QE program. Sure, to bail out uh, that the is, Italians you know, or the Greeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but even under those scenarios, you know, the scenario where QE would give the size, you know, the speed of tailwind that it has in the past is gone. Far, far more likely it is going to become a headwind. So between these three, these three forces, 
they all point in one direction, which is asset prices being forced down. And just one last point, folks normally don't realize what massive role these three forces have played in the rise of asset prices. So two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of current market values across a number of asset classes have come not from an increase in the size of cash flows, but because of an increase in valuation. And only one-third has come from an increase in cash flows, right? And if you look at the Norwegian oil fund, if you look at many of the American large pension funds, you know, the Dutch pension fund, et cetera, somewhere between 60 to 70% of their present assets under management haven't come from cash flows generated by interest rates or dividends, have come from an increase in valuation, right? So the valuation effect has been the dominant factor driving all these headlines in the rising tide of asset prices across the world. So, so Sonny, in a nutshell then, what happens next? You've got all these extraordinary supports are falling away. As you say, you have a dislocation in all assets between what we would describe as the legitimate earned valuation and the rented valuation rented from these policy supports. I mean, in a nutshell, what happens next? What do you think happens next? What do people get their heads around? People listen to the podcast who might have pensions and they've been going up, you know, gradually, you know, dumpty, dumpty, dumpty. And okay, that looks great. Every, every year they get a little thing that comes through, says, well, you're not doing too bad. And their house prices are increasing. They've made a few investments. They seem to be going well. And of course, the problem with making investments, you think going well, then if you think it's going well, you think it's all down to you. You think you're a genius and you've got the Midas touch and all that sort of, right? Where are we going? Okay, let's, let's separate this into two. So one is where should we go? And then let's get into Russia, Ukraine, climate, and where we are actually going, right? Which may or may not end up being being the two same things. So where should we go, right? So one of the other big forces in, in this whole scenario was, you know, and, and all the central bankers were until recently patting themselves on the back, you know, for having got inflation under control and having delivered this, you know, low inflation regime. But But, you know, we know. I, I hope a lot of your listeners already know that you know central bankers probably had very little to do with the Goldilocks era of, of inflation Ab- that we saw. Absolutely. Right? Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, be- I mean, God, God bless the- them. God bless them with their with their belief in their own munificence. But uh, yeah, no, no, I'm with you completely. Yeah. So, so between the fall of the Berlin Wall and China's entry into the WTO. The number of workers that were part of, you know, Western global supply chains essentially doubled within the within the period of a decade or so. And that basically meant that, you know, the price of labor was bid down and returns of on capital, which was the scarce element there, increased significantly. So even in the cash flow, legitimately earned cash flow part of the discussion we were having, you know, the the one third of the valuation increase that is, you know, legitimately driven by increase in profitability and margins, that was mostly not down to the genius of, you know, Western capital markets, what was down to geopolitical terms, you know, China and Central Eastern Europe, right? Now, those impulses have also run their course. And we see across the world, you know, labor asking for its fair share and labor share of of income and GDP has either fallen or stagnated. 
and that is you know yet another important trend which points in the same direction right so so the demographic tailwind that we got through these two large geopolitical phenomena has has also run its course now let's look south and let's look east let's look at india and let's look at nigeria in the next 20 to 30 years the population of nigeria will be bigger than the population of the european union right in India's the next 20 years in the next 20, 20 years. to 30 i forgot is it 20 okay yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. But next 20, 30 years, I did. I read something that there were more babies born in Nigeria about four years ago uh, than the entire European landmass, plus the islands, i.e. going from Ireland all the way to Vladivostok, if you include the, that part of yeah. Russia in Europe. There were more babies born in Nigeria in one year than in this entire geographical area. So the implications of that is very, very soon yeah. the Nigerian population ends up being bigger than Europe's, which is a phenomenal exactly. thing to get your and- head around. Yeah, and and India's is already you know one point four billion, right? I mean it's 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 more or less reached steady state. But but between those, now if you look at the post World War Two history of OECD EU European GDP growth, the the two big arithmetic impulses have been an absolute increase in the number of workers, which has accounted for roughly half of GDP growth, and the other half has come from productivity increase per worker, right? So the growth prognosis for a continent and, you know, the broader OECD is rather grim because, you know, the, the population driver has either flatlined or in many cases, including Germany, Japan, etc., has become a drag on growth as the absolute number of workers starts to decline. The second, which is the productivity gains part, I mean, you know, we, we've long been having the discussion of why productivity has stagnated and, and so on and so forth. And then unless and until we come to, you know, a new technological age and new as yet unanticipated drivers of productivity growth, the GDP prognosis is, is rather grim. And this linking this back to our earlier discussion that, at, you know, financial market returns at some point. Mm-hmm. Need to have be to fundamentally reflect, yeah, yeah, have to, to GDP have to reflect growth, real right? life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 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 Right? So we saw returns six to eight percent. That were twice or more compared to you know the three percent or so global growth rate. And now, has the growth rate within the OECD declines? You know, that's yet another. So just to you know add the, add the final arrow that will bring the elephant down, right? I mean, th- this is yet another thing that's likely to depress financial. Now, so, so let's talk the sunny, optimistic story now after having depressed all your listeners. Yes, please. Yes, so please. Here's, here's, yes, the, please. <laughs> here's the sunny, optimistic story. So for every rich country facing demographic decline, there are at least two developing emerging markets out there that have the opposite problem, that have a shortage, a structural shortage of capital and a structural excess of people right? India, even India, which is, you know, one of the most dynamic emerging economies, right, is not able to generate productive employment opportunities for the 12 million Indians that come into the workforce every single year, right? So is there a way of employing all of that underutilized human capital in a far, far more productive way that boosts global productivity, global growth, and the profitability of, of our firms and the returns on our investments. And, you know, 
arithmetically, the problem is very, very simple, right? Yeah, you move you move capital from one place to you basically exactly. you do you know you move the capital from when there's loads and loads of capital and not enough people. You move it to where there's loads and loads of people, not enough capital, and in so doing, you prevent all the people from that place coming into the richer place. So you kind of stem some social problems that come from immigration, and you actually boost global productivity. Can it be done? We're really out of time. Can that be done? Well, there is no other way, right? And and so let's uh, let's think of this slightly differently. So, climate change is you know perhaps the single biggest existential looming threat, you know, and and everything else is sort of is is noise. Yeah, compared it's, to it's, that. It's, it's little boy stuff. Exactly. And 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 you know what is often not discussed. If you just put yourself in in Putin's head, twenty and twenty twenty one were horrible, horrible years for anybody who was in the fossil fuel industry, right? And they really, really seemed to turbocharge what had already been a trend that the end of fossil fuels, if not in cash flow terms, but in terms of, you know, growth markets and, you know, the outlook a decade hence was was terrible. And and this was turbocharged where, you know, oil prices turned negative, right? Now, here you are, an all-powerful dictator in a country that is, for all intents and purposes, you know, just a fossil fuel exporter, right? I mean, a primary economy pretending to be a developed country. Yeah, the, the, the American put down for Russia is it's a it's a gas station, right? Yeah, and you're power hungry, you know, and and you you suffer from you know all sorts of complexes in your head, and you want to leave a mark on the world, right? And this was the last hurrah. So one can actually relate the the broader trend. It, you know, mostly driven by by the climate discussion of the decline and you know the eventual decline in fossil fuels, whenever that might happen, with Putin's last hurrah. You know, how do you make yourself notice? And of course, you know, there was the recovery from from the pandemic, and you know, there was a small supply squeeze. And if you're an opportunistic dictator, this would be the perfect opportunity to invade Ukraine. And so I think, you know, geopolitically, clearly the climate discussion is linked to the timing of, of the invasion and the nature of, you know, the slow throttling of energy flows to Europe. And just, just going back to this, so now the, the issue is, you know, 80% of what happens on climate, on biodiversity loss, on ocean acidification, on any of the multifaceted environmental challenges we face will be determined by the actions taken or not taken by emerging economies, right? So emerging and developing economies are systemically significant from an environmental point of view. Whatever you might do at home in the EU is is going to be piddling in comparison, right? But 80% of assets under management and, you know, many of the critical technologies related to the transition the EU and the United States are definitely globally, systemically significant players, right? So if you just look at from the EU, are we financially and macroeconomically and technologically relevant to the world? Yes. Absolutely. Right? And so the same financial flows that make sense from the perspective of expanding the size of the economic pie, you know, helping develop this human capital enabling catch-up growth rates. And we all know, you know, in the EU, we are close to the technological frontier. Under a good scenario, Italy might grow at 1%, right? You throw money blindfolded in a country like Nigeria, and in almost any case, it is likely, despite the corruption, 
to be employed far more productively yeah. in expanding the size of the economic pie, right? So just the neat picture is from the perspective of climate, demographics, you know, stemming migrants that might, you know, upend the, the social consensus in developing economies, generating profits for our multinationals or generating returns on assets to allow our pensioners to retire, all of the answers lie roughly in the same direction. As of today, only between 6 to 10% of Western institutional capital is deployed in any developing and emerging economy, right? And as of today, more than half of global GDP and two-thirds of growth, and you know, I think 95% of population growth, all lie in the emerging market. So there is just no other choice apart from redeploying this. The problem is we've got so used to the easy, lazy way of throwing money at the American index, let the policymakers and quantitative easing and central banking put inflate asset prices and call ourselves financial geniuses. We've forgotten what real capitalism is about. And real capitalism is about hard work, finding productively and productivity enhancing opportunities and, uh, and you know, small little opportunities that grow over time. So we will, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few people who's, Rather than saying we have, you know, too many people working in the financial sector, I now say we have too few. We have too many people working on American stock markets. We have next to nobody with the expertise, with the skills, with the connections in developing and emerging economies who's able to do the hard work, the due diligence, the search function, which is critical to capitalism, to find those investment opportunities at scale. Uh, And without that, you know, there is no sensible macroeconomic, environmental, or political path forward for the world. A tour de force. I've, I've suddenly we've chatted over the years, but the way in which you bring that all around. So what we're talking about now, and we're going to end, we're, we're going to close down the discussion, is basically there's such a self-evident and obvious need for a shift of capital from rich countries to poor countries, if nothing else, to help rich countries and poor countries together. And maybe, just maybe, the end of this three-decade-long support for what you would kind of financialization, the casino, may well be the moment where we say, hold on a second, let's park that, that game's over, but there's a new game, and that new game is actually, could benefit all of us. It's like a new Bretton Woods, almost, in terms of thinking about the world. Actually, I mean, I, I, think, I think the world has mercifully passed peak financialization. And this is, you know, the real economy biting back. You could say, you know, this is arithmetic biting back. This is, you know, Mother Earth slapping us in the face saying, wake up. Or you could say, you know, this is, this is the real economy. In all cases, the answers lie in the same direction. And maybe one last thing to, to end on. So, you know, let's look at Norway. Norway has an oil fund, 300% of GDP. So a lot of money in the bank. It still has oil and gas reserves. It has fantastic, you know, physical infrastructure. And yet there was a study done by the Norwegian finance ministry that looked at where does future Norwegian wealth come from, right? Just a sort of simplistic study. And that study concluded that roughly 80% of future Norwegian wealth came from human capital, right? Now, imagine a country like, you know, Nigeria or India, crappy infrastructure, right? Almost, you know, I mean, Nigeria has got some oil in the ground, which will probably become, you know, worthless by the time they, they get their act together. India is rather, you know, poorly endowed in natural resources, and neither of them has any money in the bank, right? All they have is people. 
And yet, right, I mean, human capital in throughout the history of modern capitalism has been the single best endowment we've had. You know, technology does a supporting function. And the, uh, you know, I mean, just the sheer injustice, madness and unfairness, you know, just this morally repugnant outcome of all these aspirational people, many of whom could do your job and my job, you know, much better than us, but just have accidentally been born in different places. And, and imagine what they would do, right? I mean, if they got the chances that you and I have had, you know, if they got a chance to develop their capital, get a chance to go to school, to university. So I think, you know, for the human race as a whole, there is a very good future, you know, despite climate and everything else that awaits us if we are able to harness that human ingenuity. And it is a crime against humanity and ourselves and our children that we are completely failing to do that. Sonny, we will leave it there. Such a brilliant way to end. As always, it's a pleasure. And uh, let's talk again. We will come back to the housing, but the housing is profoundly insignificant in comparison to the note that we've just ended on. So talk to you soon. Wonderful stuff. Cheers. Thank you, my friend. Speak soon. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mac, that was, Sonny was just amazing there. Like he, as you said earlier, he just ties everything together. But there's so much in that, that. It, oh, it deserves its own podcast. So maybe we should come back to it. You know, we have stuff to, like the valuation effect I thought was really interesting and the kind of movement of capital that he was talking about and his optimistic view of financing the future economy. So well, maybe, Mac, if you're in agreement, we'll come back to this on Tuesday and unpack it. We will definitely say. unpack it. No, listen, unless I am taken captive here by the local hard shots, yeah, I will. And, and believe, well, I'm telling you, you see fellas walking around with Kalashnikovs and big, you know, Hezbollah t-shirts and you're saying, mm, yeah. okay, maybe I should actually take the camera crew the other side of the street. So listen, what we'll do is if I get out of here, which I think I will, obviously, I'll be back home in a couple of days time. So let's do that. Let's just basically go back, 
take the ideas Sonny was talking about and tease them out a little bit more. Perfect. Okay. Great. Talk to you Tuesday. Now, while I have you, it's the summer. You've got a choice. You can sit in your Swiss, hang out, do nothing, have a few pints, take it handy. Or you can use the summer to learn economics with me on Patreon. We have two courses. The courses that I give in Trinity, macroeconomic courses, cycles, booms, busts, history, the history of money, all sorts of good stuff, right? We've got the notes, we've got the reading list, we've got everything. We take you through it. A very fine way. If you're going after a stroll, just put the headphones in and listen and learn economics with me. That's economics with me. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.